We can't thank all of you enough for all the support uh, for the AFT Construction Podcast. We just had our 25th episode anniversary and have had some amazing feedback and support. So thank you all again. And as always, our goal with this podcast is to bring a lot of value to small business owners and any of us that are running a company and entrepreneurs. There's just so much information out there. We want to bring on guests that can really help us strengthen our business. And today was no exception. We were fortunate to bring on Stuart Fred. And Stuart Fred is the chairman and CEO of Bomasada, which is a multifamily and real estate development company based out of Houston, Texas. Just an incredible firm. Stuart has been in the industry for many, many years, and his team has completed over $1.5 billion of transactional business in new develop, developments, construction, and acquisitions. He's a graduate of Texas A&M Class of 78 in environmental design and just has received many awards for his developments over the years. So definitely stay tuned for this discussion with Stuart as he gives some incredible insight and advice to running a company, being efficient, creating systems, and how to make a big impact with your firm. All right, well, welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast, and today we're fortunate to have Stuart Fred with us. Welcome, Stuart. Uh, hi, Brad. So we wanted to bring Stuart on, and you'll see throughout this conversation, Stuart has tremendous experience in multifamily development all throughout the country. And so, Stuart, let's kick this off. When you are looking at an opportunity for development, it, are you self-performing that feasibility study, or is that something you're outsourcing? No, our organization does uh, uh, that feasibility study internally. And, and so with that feasibility study, are there certain things that you're looking for with the development? I mean, we don't want to give away all the secrets, right, to what you're looking at. But what are some key components that you're going to look at when, you know, trying to invest at a certain piece of land or area in the United States? Well, that's a good question. But, uh, you know, honestly, it's a uh, very complicated uh, question to answer because we're looking at economic uh, aspects of the local economy. We're looking at the feasibility of building in the local municipalities, access to subcontractors. Uh, we're looking at uh, not only the uh, uh, individual that we're buying or the organization we're buying the property from and their sophistication level, but we're looking at exit strategies as well. So, I mean, it, it runs an entire gambit uh, when you're looking at what we specifically do, which is uh, relatively large projects in uh, multifamily for rent construction and development. So, you know, before we get into some of the specifics you just mentioned, I mean, when you talk about these large scale, you know, are there a certain amount of rooms or um, studios that you're trying to optimize a certain amount of floors? I mean, do you kind of have a wheelhouse there that you're working in? Yes, we do. Um, Basically, it's like single family home development. You know, you see what's trending uh, relative to the design, uh, what we call unit mix, which would be from efficiency units that range anywhere from uh, five to 650 square feet, all up, all the way up to three bedroom units. But again, it depends upon the local economy, the local market that you're building in, uh, uh, primary and sub markets to determine what the best best unit mix is uh, for what you intend to develop. So uh, again, it's it's pretty broad spectrum uh, uh, and we can obviously drill down as you see fit on anything that you'd like. So so with that, are these um, these aren't to purchase, right? So these are rent rentals. They're not condos where you're selling each individual unit. That is correct. We do for rent only product uh, and what we call it is class A or institutional grade type product, which is at the higher end. And given the fact that we're here currently in Scottsdale, Arizona, it would be akin to uh, the uh, Scottsdale Corridor, Kierland area, that type of for rent product. So for rent product ranges in what they call class A, B, and C, all the way down to subsidized housing, and we're at the very top of the food chain. Yeah, so, so walk us through that. Like, I'm, I'm familiar with Class A. I know some of our listeners maybe, you know, just if you're in the commercial world and, you know, if your office is considered Class A, you know, it, it has to do with the level of upgrades and quality of construction. And so, you know, what other things come into play when you get that Class A rating? You know, how do you get that, especially with the new development? Well, it's pretty much driven by <clears throat> your rental rates uh, or what we call the sh- shelter income. And, uh, uh, again, that would be driven pretty much by the economics. So if you're buying in downtown 
Scottsdale, you know, the Scottsdale corridor, you're, the price of land that you're going to pay for is so expensive, it ticks up. So you're not going to put a shack out there on that piece of property. You're going to put a piece of, you're going to develop a building, whether it's for rent or for sale, that's commensurate with the area that you're in. So you would obviously expect uh, to pay a higher threshold of either rent or and or purchase price because of the location, cost of real estate, the amenities play into that. So, I mean, then we can talk about that in a little mm-hmm. bit as well. Mm-hmm. So, and is there a certain target percentage? I know, you know, I've had guests on that own hotels, right? And they're targeting a certain occupancy um, in their feasibility studies. So is there a certain percentage or does it really vary by location and price point? Well, you could have the greatest piece of property known to man. Uh, however, the market uh, that you're attempting to target may not be there. So because they may uh, not have the income, right? To that's exactly to right. It. And or uh, if we were down in, for example, Paradise Valley, there is very little for rent uh, property down there by design, whether it be a zoning issue or otherwise. So again, it's you're sort of mixing your development and what you want to do based upon. <clears throat> the market, uh, where the market exists, uh, it would be, again, like building a, a golf course out in the middle of nowhere. Although you, you build it, they may come, but most probably you want to build it where there's access There's there's access to the property. There's a demand for rental property, whether it be through a workforce or, or otherwise, uh, that uh, would tend to then occupy. So, so with that said, I mean, when you're looking at, your feasibility study in a certain area, let's say we're in Alabama, I mean, are you, you know, how are you gauging maybe income or jobs in that area to know that it can withstand, you know, a Class A property for rent? Well, again, that's a, that's a good question. And, and uh, our organization, for the most part, uh, tends to specialize in secondary and tertiary markets, uh, which would be like maybe a Tucson uh, type market. I wouldn't vi- venture to say that Phoenix, uh, uh, well, Phoenix is primary, but uh, Scottsdale would be more of a secondary marsh market. Uh, Jacksonville, Florida, Charleston, South Carolina, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, Little Rock, Arkansas, Memphis, Tennessee. These type of markets are more your secondary, tertiary type markets. And when we analyze and look at markets, we're looking for economic trends, uh, growth characteristics, uh, uh, industry in the area, um, uh, the labor pool, labor force. Um, and typically, you know, you're, you're going to be building and, and uh, driving to a market that uh, has substantial economic growth uh, in industry. Uh, whether, regardless of what it be, as an example, Huntsville, Alabama, uh, where we're at, uh, you have uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, of the military space and so forth. It's uh, almost ground zero uh, for the military command uh, as far as space is concerned. So you have all the primary, um, secondary, tertiary uh, type subcontractors, contractors in space and air defense that are all located and the type of employees are not people that are, you know, pushing uh, 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 shovels and, and wheelbarrows around. It's They're very highly educated engineers, uh, freshly out of school, support. So they're upwardly mobile uh, and they can afford and they demand uh, a nicer place to live. Which makes sense. And we've seen that. We've seen a big demand you know, for Class A multifamily here in Phoenix and Scottsdale. And, you know, these are nice properties, and they're not cheap to build, as you know, right, as costs keep going up. But as we get back into this, you know, before we dive into some pricing um, things, so when you, you know, one of the things that I, I really respect, Stuart, is that you are working in all these markets. I look at it from my side. Okay, we're in Phoenix. I know the Phoenix market and the challenges we have. I can't imagine, okay, we're going to be doing a project in Louisiana. We're doing a project in South Carolina and Florida. So how are you, you know, understanding the municipality and the regulations and what they will allow, you know, because there's a lot of time and effort that goes into, okay, we have a piece of land, but now let's figure out logistics, right? What the city will allow us to do, height limits, size, et cetera. Well, it's, it's pretty simple and probably the, the most basic of answers is it's experience. So mm-hmm. I'm not advocating that, uh, you know, just because you listen to what I have to say that all of a sudden you, you're you experienced enough to go build in any other market. It, it goes with, you know, many, 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 many years of experience, understanding how to navigate the processes, what questions to ask and what to look for. 
Uh, probably the simplest uh, and most basic response to your question is understand your limitations and understand you're in someone else's sandbox and treat it accordingly and uh, ask questions. But back to the original premise by which you asked, why we're in secondary and tertiary markets uh, is predominantly because our main offices are in Houston, Texas. So we're in a primary market. And it's like Phoenix. Phoenix is uh, uh, akin pretty much to Houston. We're the third largest uh, uh, city in the United States right now. But we have a lot of highly, highly experienced, very, very, very good multifamily uh, for rent developers and developers slash and or contractors. And uh, um, with that experience and with our organization is pushing uh, uh, 40 years old, we take that primary market experience that we have learned over the years and into the secondary and tertiary markets where our competition is not as keen, where we may be dealing with either local or regional type players that uh, uh, don't have the experience level, not to suggest that they're not good, but they, they don't have access to subcontractors, to finance, uh, to marketing, uh, design. I mean, I can, the whole plethora of, uh, what it takes to develop a product. And uh, that's why we concentrate in those areas uh, because it's a little bit easier for us to then in turn navigate through the uh, trials and tribulations that one might find in a market that you've never been in before. And it's pretty easy. So once you've, you've done it a lot, it becomes uh, uh, almost second nature and uh, uh, easier to, to prove up and, and quantify a development. So, so let me ask you this, because one thing that's always been on my mind, you know, when you are building in these other markets, and, and you alluded to this, you talked about construction. So are you typically in these other markets bringing in your own subcontractor base, or are you looking for local labor pools to fill that gap? Well, and again, based upon the premise of our discussion today, is when you're in those type of markets, you have to ask yourself a question, whether you're building what we build, office buildings, retail, single-family homes, how skilled are the local trades, uh, supply base, supply chain, uh, and subcontractors to perform on a large project? It's our experience that uh, even if you go to a secondary market, pick a Jacksonville, Florida, for example, I'm sure they have, well, and we have developed there, uh, they have very good subcontractors, but normally they're not developing and or as busy uh, with the type of product that we do on an ongoing basis, as you might find in a Phoenix or in a Houston or a Dallas uh, uh, or uh, a Denver, Colorado, where you see new construction, multifamily sites, single family sites, et cetera, on every street corner darn near. So the subcontractor base is much more available in the markets that I'm referring to. Although the subcontractor base may not be there, uh, the amount of development that those markets see don't necessarily tend to promote uh, uh, the type of subcontractors that you would want working on your project because it's a different animal. Mm-hmm. We're talking about speed, efficiency, sequencing, etc., and you're only as uh, fast as your slowest subcontractor. So in the event that you happen to make a decision and pick somebody locally that doesn't either have the supply chain uh, that they have access to, the work and labor force that is required to keep pace with uh, uh, the type of construction. When you're building 280 to 360 units in one locale, uh, it becomes problematic. So uh, I'm sure this will lead to your next question, and I'll answer it. Uh, We travel with predominantly highly specialized multifamily uh, subcontractors that travel with us, and those are normally the primes, uh, the prime subcontractors uh, that are used to traveling with multifamily. Uh, then that's not to say that you can't find a diamond in the rough with somebody locally, but normally they're just not competitive uh, and they just are not able to keep pace with uh, highly skilled multifamily guys. No different than going into a a small town with uh, uh, the Diamondbacks to play a AAA team in uh, uh, the Wingnuts in Wichita, Kansas. Who do you think is going to win? Even though they're both dedicated, who do you think is going to win the game? Absolutely. So. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, I, I look at it here, you know, there's contractors I know that will go work in Flagstaff or Sedona and other areas or Payson. And, and again, you know, that it's limited, not that there's not good contractors, but to your point about sequencing and, 
you know, if you're doing hotels or multifamily, you know, there's there's staging. I mean, this is a quick pace, you know, and there are trades on top of each other and there's a flow here. And so if you have someone that's not keeping up, it's really going to throw at your schedule. And so I know a lot of the subcon, you know, big GCs here that are developing in these other areas are doing the same thing. They're bringing some of their key players, at least the infrastructure, you know, and then they'll outsource what they can locally, you know, to save a little bit on those per diem and expenses, right, that you normally incur. So, I, you know, are there any other contract? I mean, from a subcontracting side, I mean, what is the core that you're trying to bring with you? Is it, you know, concrete, framing? Is that what you're alluding to from, from the core side of it? Yeah, uh, you know, and, and it logically makes a lot of sense. We, we typically, it makes it very, very difficult uh, as you look from literally takeoff to touchdown in, in construction, no matter what type of construction. Your underground utility contractors, site work contractors are di- very difficult to travel with because there are geological conditions that are that evident in different parts, exactly, yeah. in different parts of the country they're not familiar with. So normally you end up using someone local. But, but after that, uh, once you have site prep, you can travel with concrete, electrical, your MEPs, yep. uh, electrical plumbing, uh, and uh, all the way up through framing, sheetrock, your finishes, etc. And again, it, it would be great to utilize and contribute to the local economy, but when you're when your uh, development costs are, you know, $50, $75 million, you, it's very difficult to take a chance on someone local if they don't have a proven track record uh, and uh, then take a chance of them potentially uh, uh, either slowing down or uh, impacting uh, the progress and or the ultimate uh, uh, project. Well, it's interesting you say that. So I have a, a colleague of mine. They do schools all throughout the country. And, and to your point, one of the challenges they had at their firm is they didn't bring any subcontracting labor. So they would, you know, go and build a school. And he said the issue is as a new GC and you're kind of one and done in town, you're, you're typically not getting the cream of the crop anyways from a subforce. So the ones you're getting, you know, you don't have a relationship with, you're one and done. And so you're not getting the top tier. And so they, you know, they'll have challenges with their electrical and their plumbing and some of these things. And so I think that's very strategic from you is that you're competing in these markets and you have known entities, which is going to, Maybe there's a little cost in bringing them on, you know, to this remote location. However, it'll pay dividends because of speed and timing and familiarity with, with your process. That's correct. But uh, two points. Number one, the cream of the crop of the local guys, if they're cream of the crop, they're usually too busy. And yeah. the type of product that we do or others that may ask of them may be such to where they're not experienced and they know enough to say, nah, we're not going to do it, or, or we're not capable of doing it or meeting your timelines. Because everything is, is basically negotiated at the front end. So when you have delivery schedules, your contractual obligations, et cetera, if they're worth their weight, and, and if they're not, you're not talking to them anyway, but they're under contract and they're bound by those contracts and delivery schedules. The second part of uh, that component that you alluded to uh, is, frankly, not always the case, because I mentioned that these, the... the uh, efficiency levels of using skilled uh, multifamily folks that are used to doing this in our line of the business understand the speed, their their employees are trained, etc. And I would say probably 80% or better of the time, us bringing in our subcontractors from out of state is cheaper than using someone local and or regionally, including the housing costs. And normally, when we bring those trades into town by virtue of what they're capable of producing, it is not uncommon for others that in those same cities to look at these subcontractors, suppliers, et cetera, and now then they establish either a satellite office or they start doing other work in that town because they're ending up blowing away the local subcontractor base because of what they can do. So, so that's interesting. So it's almost advantageous for them, too, that they want to partner with you, Stuart, because now they can go and they can set up these satellite offices, and now it increases their um, you know, work potential and projects on their resume. Yeah, and, and Brad, that's not uncommon. And, and, and I, we're certainly by no means unique in what we're talking about today because, I mean, I, I have friends uh, in the business that are peers of mine that do the exact same thing. Uh, and, you know, we're just uh, a small little uh, group out there uh, doing this, and, and we've been doing it well for a number of years, and there are a lot of guys that do the ident- identical thing. 
So, so with this set, Stuart, I mean, as we, as we get back to the feasibility study, we've talked about kind of the labor force, you know, working in these locations around the country. You know, one of the things that we all deal with, you have these project, projections, you have a database, you have, uh, you know, history. You've done $1.5 billion of transactional business in your career. So you have a really good pulse on what the cost of a project will be. However, we all know it's construction, right? And as markets change, as labor and materials change, you know, how do you manage some of those unforeseen costs or price increases with labor and material throughout the course of a project? Well, you know, we're, we're like most. We're, we're paper uh, um, <clears throat> developers slash contractors. We, we are not just a developer. We're also a general contractor, and we do our, our own construction. We do not do third-party construction. So when we enter into contracts uh, with our subcontractors and suppliers <clears throat> at the onset of a, a potential project, they're bound. So they are uh, exposed to those material cost increases, uh, whether they be sheetrock, whether they be concrete, lumber fluctuations in the markets. They have to wag that into their, um, cost. Into their cost, no different than anybody else does when they project. All of a sudden, there's been a blip, and they haven't obligated. They haven't locked in on pricing uh, with their subcontractors or suppliers once they bid a project, and then they get popped by it. They, they're not coming to us because that's what they've extended a contract and a pricing to to hold that. It's up to them. Now, I, I won't. Maybe this is not the topic, but many times subcontractors get in trouble because either they didn't lock in supply costs or supply chains. And then uh, it ends up being problematic, and and you have subcontractor failures, and and uh, their their non-ability to perform, and so it becomes uh, um, an issue. Yeah, and then it falls back on you, and then you have to to figure that out. But but that is interesting. So your your goal in the beginning is you're working through pricing. You know that you're locking in this subs and suppliers, whether it be LOIs or however you're doing that internally, that we don't need to dive into. But you're giving them some form of agreement where they need to now secure pricing hold it, especially on a scale like this where they have a lot more capabilities with their suppliers to do so because of the scale of the work. Yeah, and that's not uncommon uh, with what we're talking about or doing uh, in the industry. I mean, you know, the, the typical uh, uh, project timeline from takeoff to touchdown could be 16 to uh, 20 months. So, you know, you're signing up as many of your uh, uh, subcontractors, suppliers, et cetera, at the onset. And uh, what I'm about to tell you makes op obvious sense. So if you're uh, projecting a cost on a project of X and you're not and you're pricing it as you go and you're basing your entire feasibility and economic projections on that and your cost, assuming they go the wrong way and you're not hedging uh, because you feel that prices are coming down and you're waiting to delay to buy and they go up, well, you know, that, that mm -hmm. nicks into your uh, cost of return or return on investment, ROI. Yep. So it, it is uh, something to be very careful about uh, and just prudent about when you price a project. So, you know, with these things, you know, we talk about pricing. I mean, I know one thing, Stuart, that you've been very successful at is you're, you're looking at all the opportunities, not only locally um, as well as, you know, the network you've built over these 40 years of experience and development, but you've also looked overseas, right, at, supplying certain products you know at you know because of the work you're doing where you're doing maybe 300 rooms right you can buy in bulk and so how does how does that even begin I mean how did you I don't want to say have the courage but start building that network you, you know working with other countries to now supply product at bulk to help you be more successful and and targeted in your approach. Well, I'm I'm assuming that we could probably look in your studio here and start looking at where is the product made and what do you think you're going to find. It's where all over. It made? Most of it's not here. It's in it's it's in one of maybe two or three right. places. Okay, uh, and it's either the Far East or down south in Mexico. Yeah. It's uh, and, and so where do you think the suppliers are buying their product? Same places. There you, there you go. So uh, it's all a matter of trying to create a better mousetrap. And, and obviously, if it if it's becomes worthwhile to look at uh, sourcing direct, you structure your subcontract agreements with your subcontractors to peel out those, th those items. Now, what we're referring to, for the most part, are finish-related items. 
not we're, we're not talking about going direct to the uh, uh, the concrete uh, uh, manufacturers or, or you know the, the concrete Robert. plants or the or, or the masonry you know uh, plants that are making bricks or the foundries or steel or or uh, uh, anything along those lines we're talking about finishes cabinets countertops uh, plumbing fixtures, uh, light fixtures uh, of the of the uh, of the type. So, a subcontractor typically, uh, and I know you know this, is you know he goes to a typical supplier because he's buying onesie twosies Correct. for the most part. Mm-hmm. The supplier goes to a distributor. The distributor is going to potentially one other point of reference, who in turn is going overseas. So, this product that you're buying may be touched four, three to maybe five times with three to five times the markup. So if we're doing, uh, uh, let's just use a 300-unit apartment complex, uh, of which uh, a, for the most part you may have 450 bathrooms, maybe 475 in total. So you're buying, let's say, 475 toilets. Let's use a toilet, for example. Well, how many guys do you know are buying 475 toilets. Not very many. So now the economies of scale work in such to where we can source that same product that uh, a lot of the distributors for the multifamily trade ultimately are sourcing through five times of a markup. I can go direct. I can buy that product. I can then coordinate through the supply chain to have it here where the, the if it's a toilet, the plumber's installing and you know the only risk that I'm really taking because there is a fairly significant cost delta savings on that cost of the toilet as long as I look at that toilet to make sure that uh, and this is applicable for everything else that we're buying but assuming you're buying from reputable trades in plumbing you're looking for uh, UPC approvals uh, mm-hmm. for um, uh, the U.S. so that it is it meets the requirements of uh, uh, the plumbing code, universal plumbing codes. UL listing for lighting. Absolute right? UL for lighting, etc. And then that each uh, specific component has a letter of authorization uh, that is issued by the manufacturing agency that they are, are in compliance with whatever regulatory issues may be there uh, in the U.S. to be able to use that product, like a UL. And uh, um, so we, we're looking deep to make sure that, okay, it's a toilet. Can we get the parts? Are the guts unique? Is it Basically, if it's made for the U.S., is the supply chain to support that product still good? No different than a TV that you buy. We're not manufacturing televisions or computers or anything else here, but the parts are readily available. Yep. Uh, so we're looking at it in the same capacity. So all I need to really do is manage then the supply chain uh, the logistics uh, of, of ordering uh, and making sure that it is arriving uh, in sequence with uh, the product when it needs to be installed. Uh, and many times, even though that it may be uh, like cabinets uh, for or tops, they may be you know, 11, 12 months into the project once we start. I may have to start ordering that six, seven months before I need it. No different than your Walmart does when they're ordering yeah. Christmas supplies. Absolutely. They're, they're ordering those right now, yep. you know, for next Christmas. They're already seeing what's trending, what's what's happening. So so that's interesting. So when you're looking at timeline and, you know, the chain and stuff, that, that you know, we understand that, that you're looking far enough in advance to get that. But now, now the cumbersome part, when you're dealing with 475 bathrooms and all these vanities and tops and toilets, you know, the staging, you know, if something comes in a little bit early, you know, how does that add to the complexity of staging it, uh, protecting it right from theft and other things that can happen, you know, in a big development? Those are excellent questions, and I can tell you by experience, uh, we've been hurt by that on many times. And a lot of times when you allude to theft, many times that is uh, theft that is internal to the project uh, with workers. Uh, Maybe you, staff that sees it's there and then they come by. Laying around. So you, you have, you know, when, when typically with a subcontractor uh, outside of what we're talking about, uh, the subcontractors um, taking all those risks of the product, uh, whether it's in their warehouse or what have you. We have staging areas uh, that we lock. Uh, we put under uh, video surveillance. 
Uh, we also use uh, third-party um, uh, supply chain uh, uh, distribution centers uh, that we can distribute into the distribution center and then call it up ad hoc as needed. All of that is also uh, a function of cost. Mm-hmm. And, you, and, you know, this all sounds great, uh, which it is if it's handled properly. Uh, you can, can really save yourself a lot of money. But when we talk about what you just asked uh, as it relates to theft, the logistics of showing up early, let's just assume you have a dock worker strike. Right. You know, yeah, that and comes out of up, California, which we have been. Long Beach or something, absolutely. right? Absolutely. You're, you're coming in at uh, several points around the country, mm-hmm. either Long Beach in California, around uh, in the south, if you're coming through the, uh, the canal into either Texas, Houston, uh, and or uh, Mobile. And then on the east coast is Jacksonville or Charleston, Charleston, South Carolina. So, and you're coordinating that with, you know. Uh, timing and the Timing and, 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 and I mean, it just, it gets, it's not impossible but you're Just doing this for a reason. You're doing it yeah. for a reason. Why? You're hoping to save money. Yeah. I mean, that's why else would you do this? Absolutely. Uh, and that's uh, the point. So if you become good at it, it 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 can it, be very. It's justifiable. Absolutely. So so when you're looking, one, one thing that's unique about you is I know a lot of people that are in multifamily. It's you alluded to this earlier in the conversation. One thing that's unique about your company, Stuart, is you guys are the developer and the contractor. You're both. Whereas in a lot of cases throughout the country, it's, you know, is there a percentage that you've seen where, is it 50-50 that they self-perform, or what's that percentage from a lot of your competitors? It depends, Brad, based upon where they're doing the work, what is their capacity, and how big do they want to grow their organization. Um, Because I can answer every one of those. And depending upon the economic times, uh, subcontractors, are not readily as available and as good as they were 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh, there's a shortage. No one wants to work. Uh, it's a shortage of, uh, of, skilled, of, labor. of skilled labor set. So, um, you know, we're looking at this right now ourselves. Um, no matter how good or successful we've been in the past, do we really want to continue to have that risk and exposure because the subcontractors can make or break you. And uh, do we then outsource that risk to a third-party contractor that we then in turn hire to then perform this work? Uh, And that's something that uh, one constantly has to to look at to determine uh, one's exposure. Because as you do anything, whether it's single family or, or what have you, on a production basis as a developer, you know, you have an organization that you have to continue to maintain. And if you can't stay or remain profitable, then it becomes problematic and you're not as efficient as you were. And then you end up where you can be a profit center on the construction side and on the development side. If then construction loses, or it's not efficient, they lose money, then you're waiting for the development side or the exit strategy when you sell the property to make up for the losses. And that ain't smart. Right. And and that's the, you know, the juxtaposition, right? That you're trying to say, okay, well, if we can have both elements in our umbrella be profitable, that's that's a win-win, right? But if, right. We, if, if because of labor pool shortages and cost of construction that why take that liability? Maybe we subcontract it to a contractor, GC, and then we're just operating as a developer. And the, and, and you're mitigating you're mitigating that risk, and right. that that is the intent, and that is what is smart to do. I mean, no matter what business you're in, I mean that's what you're in business to do. Be smart about it, and uh, or you're not going to remain in business. Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you this, Stuart. I mean, being that you are GC and developer. I mean, are you self-performing architecture as well, or is that something that you're subbing out? No, all the professional disciplines uh, in design usually fall underneath the umbrella of the architect. And again, that in turn, uh, no different than anywhere else, these guys are highly specialized. So you're just not going down to your local architect. Hey, I want right. you to develop a 300-unit apartment <laughs> complex. Or I mean, it's highly no different than you'd go down yeah. to the podiatrist and say, "I need brain surgery." <laughs> you know, you're you're going to the guy that is best suited uh, with the highest degree of experience to do the work. And, and and again, one of the benefits of working with these high-end architecture firms. I mean, even if they're based out of Houston, let's say 
It doesn't matter. They have the capability to understand the manip- municipality and codes and local jurisdictions. I, 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 I will not interrupt, but I'll tell you right now. Again, it's no different than specialists, uh, and I equate it to medicine. If you're one of the greatest heart surgeons, you're going to have people from all over the world coming to you. Okay, yep. uh, if no different than, and there are a lot of them, uh, obviously, and no different. There are there are many, 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 many. Uh, uh, I don't know if I would call them high end, but very experienced, highly specialized, only in multifamily. These are architects that only do multifamily, uh, and these guys, for the most part, uh, you'll find are are licensed in damn near every state in the United States, or if their practice is limited to the Southwest in uh, the southern uh, states. So they tend to to, to uh, locate their practice there. The larger the architectural firm the wider uh, they cast their net and they may be doing stuff in different parts of the country, but then it gets into different markets. You know, what's what's popular here in, 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 in Phoenix is not necessarily popular in Charlotte, North Carolina, in terms of the architecture, in terms of the design, what the people are looking for in terms of the amenities, no different than it would be in Denver, Colorado. So you have to be sensitive to that and and make the right choices. I I think that's a very intelligent point you just made, Stuart, because you talked about that even though an architect may be based somewhere and have tremendous skill and capability, styles do change. And even in a current style in 2020, it will vary from Manhattan to Phoenix to Charleston, right? You're going to have very different styles that speak. So one thing I know that you do do, right, is you do perform all of the design in-house. Yeah, and 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 uh, we're we're referring to more specifically interior design, With and that is yeah. yeah, and and that is fit and finish, not necessarily, if you will, the floor planning, uh, the exterior elevations. We will have. But, but input are you making? That. If, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, because you yeah. are doing the interior design, are you also helping guide the architect? You know, based on absolutely. exterior options. You know, absolutely, you know what, what a- absolutely. We, and this is where when you go around, uh, you know, the country or even here, you walk into a home, uh, you guys build and, and design and, and, and develop homes, <laughs> you can start laughing immediately when you say, this guy didn't have any clue what he was doing. We got right. doors opening into other doors. <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's, yes. I, I mean, it, it, so you, we have developed over the years uh, what we believe are functional and workable floor plans uh, that make sense. So in the unit itself, every door can remain open. There are no conflicts with other doors. You, you have the right amount of space where the bed is uh, for uh, uh, tables, uh, side tables, lamps. It, it, it's, you know it's well designed. And you can take a very well-designed floor plan and skin it any which way you want to make it modern, old world, rustic. You know, it's it's the uh, it's the bones uh, that are are uh, important. Uh, and as I drive around here, just looking at single-family homes in some of these subdivisions, it's the same home. However, maybe it's got a dormer or, or uh, uh, a different uh, uh, pane design uh, as far as the mullions on the windows, but it's the same floor plan. It's just skinned differently. Yeah. So it's the same thing. And what's interesting is you made that comment. I mean, what separates good design is the flow, the functionality, right? How savvy you are with the floor plans and layout and doors opening and returns and all those little things, furniture layouts, right? For- and again, when you're doing production work, Brad, custom is an entirely different story. I totally. mean, if you're doing a one-off custom... Yeah, I mean, you know, you could have no doors. I mean, it's whatever the person wants. I mean, that's what you're doing. We, on the other hand, are doing, you know, for rent product that has to assume that we need to be attractive to the masses. And especially you have to think about even the logistics, right? If you have an elevator or not and how wide are the stairwells and can they get furniture in? Because if you're a rent, you want to make it feasible for... To be attractive for people. All, all of these things are very important. So what what an architect that you may go to that doesn't have multifamily experience isn't contemplating loading docks. Right. How do you get rid of trash? Exactly. You know, are there trash chutes? I mean, there's so many things that are highly specialized. Again, no different. I, I can this. And it makes common sense. But... I, you know, I, I got to go to the heart doctor. Well, I'm not going to my podiatrist to have him tell me what I should do about my heart. I'm yep. going to go to the guy that knows 
the maladies and the dilemmas and what to do, and it's highly specialized in this, and, and uh, so at well, least you're in good hands. Yeah, well, let me ask you this, Stuart, because even though your architect may be very savvy if they're in the multifamily world and they understand the spacing and logistics that go into this process we're talking about, but one thing that's ever-changing is now technology and millennials and other things. So how are you adjusting or designing amenities, right? Because I'm sure over the years of your 40 years experience, you've seen amenities changes, what you need to offer, you know, to get people in there that's going to attract them. Yeah, that's a good question. So never lose sight of the fact, we don't, that at the end of the day, in, in under a typical development scenario, you, you, you know, you're investing your money, you're going to the bank, you're getting a development loan, construction loan, etc. And if everything goes great, you look like a hero. If things don't go good, what do you think happens? Right. Bank's chasing you. You got lenders, all these other lenders. Yep. You, 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 you have, I mean, you have issues. Now, we have never experienced any of that. We've never had any type of partnership uh, uh, bankruptcies, problems, et cetera. That's, it, we've been very, very diligent about doing the right thing. But my point to you is, is that you then are not allowing the various disciplines whether it be an architect, whether it be an interior designer, a landscape architect, uh, the structural engineer, or, or what have you, other than when you have to default to their expertise, to basically drive you to make a business decision that isn't smart or prudent. At the end of the day, you're the responsible party if you're the developer, opposed to being just simply a cog in the wheel. Uh, and uh, so it becomes very, very important to have a very, very wide experience and understanding of the profession that you're in, no matter what you do, I don't care what you do, you just better be damn good at what you do and understand your business, the ins and the outs, and don't be complacent, and you're more set up for success than you would be for failure. Um, that, that's, that, that is very, very important because I have seen, and you could, you probably know this market, well, I know you know the market much better than me, guys that have maybe pick the wrong architect, design the wrong product in the wrong wrong marketplace, and, you know, bad, let's go back to 208, uh, 207, foreclosures everywhere. Mm -hmm. Well, at least the product that was built smartly had, uh, stood the test of time or was, was better positioned in the marketplace, at least if times go bad, they're going to remain occupied or they'll still trade. It's the product that's sort of, you know, so-so or they weren't done smartly or uh, everything that we're talking about wasn't executed right doesn't really have the best chance for success right so it's going to struggle it's going to struggle that's right so so what's amazing Stuart as we've talked about and you shared just some amazing information with us so you've built this incredible company you know as we as we discussed well, well let's say this not many companies can say in their headline that they've surpassed one and a half billion dollars of transactional business right in new development so What's fascinating, so tell us a little bit about your story. I mean, how did Bomasada come about? Like, what's your background, Stuart? Well, Brad, it's really not about me. It's about all the good people that you surround yourself with. But uh, um, Which is great advice. Like, that was one of the questions I was going to ask, but we yeah. can get into that later. But, but um, what's your story? Because our listeners will want to know about your story, even though we know that you can't do this by yourself. You no, you can't. Just you like can't. A, myself, right? You have to be surrounded with a great team that's committed and, and, and we'll take your vision and run with it. Yeah, you. well, and that's, that's something that's very, very important and takes talent as well as being able to surround yourself with the right people who can execute the vision, who can think for themselves, uh, and do the right thing. So that's, you know, that's, uh, uh, that's a challenge. Um, and then, uh, um, you know, and hopefully one is successful in, in orchestrating and keeping uh, the personnel and those folks uh, uh, focused for the, the success of the organization. Uh, but to your, to your question, I, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 grew, I grew up uh, um, in, in a, a middle-class family, um, but always had tremendous work ethics and uh, was working, I, I mean, whether it be mowing yards, I was I was worked in the health club picking up jock straps. <laughs> I mean, I I, I uh, as as a young kid uh, in the early teens, you know, stocking shelves uh, uh, at the drugstore, um, you know, and 
and I will say blessed at being somewhat entrepreneurial, and I don't know if you learn that or it, you're, you're just blessed with the talent, uh, but, uh, uh, and always looking at uh, ways to do something better or create a better mousetrap. So, I mean, it's not, you know, um, I guess maybe there's, and, and there's probably a great deal of luck uh, involved in all this too. So uh, it, it wasn't uh, uh, as though it just sort of fell out of the sky, but, um, you know, it requires hard work and still at my age of 64 right now, I mean, I'm, I'm still working uh, uh, hard uh, and, and I don't think I, I think I would be bored if I didn't. Well, so. well, I think one thing I've noticed, you know, in, in interacting and working with you, Stuart, and I've noticed this in a lot of successful business owners, right, is that there's a couple things. You talk about that you've been lucky. Well, I, I think that's true with any business, but a lot of that you make your own luck, right, because of attitude, work ethic. Um, you know, you're going to dictate that luck, if you will. And and one thing is you're very pragmatic and thoughtful, right, in, in how you are with situations, very professional. And, and so you look at those characteristics and – you know, if you apply that to business and if you're a positive person, it, it allows you because there's always going to be challenges in every project with every business. And so, you know, being positive and having that great outlook, you know, you're going to have luck. You're kind of going to dictate that. Right. And, and you know, you have a lot of outlets, too. I mean, you're a great golfer. You are a pilot. Right. So tell us about that. I mean, some of the, the things you keep that you do outside of business to kind of keep that mind sharp. Well, um uh, as as it, as it relates to things that I do outside of, uh, of the organization, um, thank you. I, I do play golf. I play quite a bit. I started, uh, my mom started me when I was five, so um, all the way through junior golf, collegiate golf, uh, and into senior golf. Uh, I'm a member of a, a, a great golf club here in uh, the Scottsdale area. Play so, a lot so did of you golf. play at Texas A&M? Yes. Oh, you did? Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. And uh, then, uh, uh, then senior golf. Uh, so I, I play still a, a significant amount of tournament golf. Uh, and then uh, uh, also I have a uh, great love and passion for aviation. Uh, so I have, uh, uh, you know, flown uh, most of my life uh, as a uh, uh, teenager. Uh, but I wanted to mention, if I may, uh, one of the things that you said uh, a little bit earlier just right before you asked me this question, it was almost a twofold. And I don't know, I may be uh, 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 stepping on uh, uh, ground that I really shouldn't be stepping on, but you had mentioned about, uh, you know, the hard work and so forth. Well, I, uh, at uh, without sounding like an old crudgety guy, I, I <laughs> find it to be generational. And uh, um, you are a generation younger than I, possibly two generations younger than I. But I have noted that um, um, the qualities and characteristics uh, are a lot fewer and far between than uh, people of my generation, uh, and even of the generations uh, prior to me uh, that I've observed. Uh, so I, I find that uh, a lot of those work ethics, it's not as though they don't exist, but I think uh, um, what is... What parents have done today with their with their kids uh, and or their uh, their employees, et cetera, there's so much, so many more liberties and that have been taken and and hard work. It's more of the me 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 mm -hmm. <laughs> generation, uh, and uh, this is probably not anywhere that you really want to uh, to go. In, no, in I'm this, okay going here actually in this venue, but uh, I I I have a, a big issue with that, and 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 I'm not alone. Uh, a lot of my my peers that, that uh, have very similar um, uh, concerns uh, because it's almost like the dumbing down of, uh, of, of where we are going as a, um, a workforce, as a country, et cetera, to make it easy. And, uh, you know, that uh, seeing guys that, uh, uh, whether guys or gals, uh, that are just looking for the five o'clock bell or to go off and they're out the door. Um, the one thing that, uh, that I, I uh, talk about specifically to our folks is, is that don't worry about trying to impress anybody. Uh, do what you normally would think would be the right thing to do and, and, and work hard because those who recognize or those that are empowered to promote you in your career path 
have most probably been there and done that, otherwise they wouldn't be in that position. And they recognize those traits instantaneously. And they also recognize the traits in those that are out there looking to, you know, is he looking at me? Is he, does, he, does he see Does he see that I'm here uh, maybe an extra 15 or 20 minutes? You, can, you know immediately those people that don't look for those recognitions. That's just part of their natural work ethics and how they approach things. And those are the people that will advance. And, you know, I love that you touched this point because I, you know, I network with other builders and people in other professions constantly, Stuart. And, and one thing that's interesting, that the problem with today, without spending a whole other hour, right, on, 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 on this side, it's just the, <laughs> Because we, it's easy to do. It's easy to do, like the in, empowerment and the self-entitlement, right? And I almost feel, you know, that if, if most everyone in our country had the opportunity to go live abroad, go live in another country for a while, whether it be Peace Corps or Ecclesiastical, whatever it may be, and get a point of reference of Amen. what we have here. Okay, Amen. that's going to change your perspective because we have this give me, give me, give me. And and it's funny, we had some subcontractors send a, a email saying we're going to have a training seminar on how to deal with millennials and this working class. And it's sad that, you know, that to your point, that there's all these liberties given. And it's not that we're demanding so much as business owners, but there, there's a loss there of this empowerment, entitlement that I see in my generation. I mean, I talked to my dad who just retired and he manage electrical crews in the union and he would talk about just how the labor pool has changed over the years and it is so difficult and i feel that we have so much as a society that it's hurt us right because all the, you know when i was a kid no one had a big screen tv right no one had <laughs> some of these amenities you just did it you had one car and now everyone has to have a new car and big screen tvs and an iphone and so it's it's a totally different mentality and how we get through that i mean we could spend a whole nother conversation on that well, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, uh, and it, it's, it's when you look at the incentive base uh, to sort of incentivize, um, you know, whether it be workforce, uh, employees, or what have you, uh, by working hard. Now, now, not, Brad, as we all know, not everybody can be a leader. You've got to have, uh, uh, you know, followers, leaders, and followers. Uh, everybody can't be the Indian chief, although they would want to. And, and uh, I would say 99% of all the people that we have <laughs> in my organization think, oh, yeah, I could do your job, no problem whatsoever. Yeah, it's easy. Well, you know, uh, when the rubber hits the road, it ends up being a completely different story altogether. And then all of a sudden, hands go up in the air, and, and uh, uh, I, I don't know about that, you know. It, but I have great people uh, in, in our organization. I'm not crawfishing, but it's just the reality. I mean, we're talking about what is the reality in business today and, and what is the reality in our society as it relates to all these things. I mean, you can just look around no matter where you are and uh, at, at various levels. And, you know, everybody feels they are not getting enough. They, they, they want more. I deserve more. And I'm working way too hard. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the mentality that hurts, right? It hurts everyone. And it hurts everyone. And, and it's funny because it kind of plays in perfectly. A lot of people have asked, okay, well, now we're dealing with coronavirus and COVID-19, right? And so what's funny is, as you're alluding to, I mean, if you're prepared as a business owner and you've saved your money and you're not spending it all, we knew some equilibrium, you know, it was going to come. Some It was going to level the playing field, whether it been a recession. It just came in a different format this yeah. time. And if you have been preparing for it, because you lived through the last one, then you should be able to come out of this in a much better position, right? Instead of some of these companies that are needing bailouts because they took all their profits well, and spent it. Yeah, and, and an interesting thing, as we well know, and, and I'm, I'm into, uh, and people in my group will tell you, into these goofy analogies all the time, you know, and I tell them, it's a jungle out there. I mean, literally, it's a jungle. So ask yourself the question. Uh, so <clears throat> what we do is try to be smart. So I have accountability, or at least I attempt to get accountability. So instead of having an organization that could be potentially, pick a number, whatever you do, let's say 20 people, I will cross-train and make sure that I have one person that has a little bit of understanding of what the next person's job is, but I run a very, very, what I hope and believe is an efficient uh, uh, organization. Tight ship. A tight ship. Mm-hmm. So if you have any failures in any specific area, you know exactly where the failure and the breakdown is. It's not like, well, you know, Betty can point at Bob and Bob can point at Jane or Jim and say, well, I didn't know, he knew. I, I mean, 
you, you, you structure your organization to where the accountability is there, and then you always look for closure. You know, it's, it's sort of, okay, um, you know, Scott, I need you to be in charge of this, and I need you to do X, Y, and Z, and then get back with me and let me know what is going on. You don't leave it opened in, I just need you to do this, with no deliverable or no degree of accountability where they have to then perform and respond back to be accountable for what they're being asked to do. And really what you're alluding to, I mean, cross-training and accountability is important to any successful business, but it's also systems, right? You have systems in place that now it creates processes right. that have been tried and true and that allows you to have a success Right, and, and, and we're always learning. Better ways to skin the cat. One, one of the things that, uh, that I guess I have probably learned more than anything else is though, whether you would consider, Stuart, you're an idea guy or you're a nuts and bolts guy, et cetera, you know, yes, but I, ha I never had, if you will, the formal training uh, in a structured environment uh, because out of school I went right into business for myself. So it wasn't as though I worked in a multitude of organizations that had a lot of this in play. We were, I don't want to say by, ran by the seat of our pants, but, but somehow we did. We were very entrepreneurial trial by error, but the most important takeaway that for, for that, uh, Brad, was the fact that when you stubbed your toe, you didn't forget. Yeah. You learned. You, you're, and you're, you don't make that mistake again. You don't time. make that mistake again because you, you know, you're the one who, who is penalized. You know, if, if, if you make a mistake, you don't make money or you didn't do something, well, it's not your employees that get penalized. They still get a check. It's, well, geez, I've got to write the check to uh, make up for my mistake or their mistake. So, again, it gets back to the accountability and owning what you're in business to do. Uh, and if you're not capable or prepared to own up for the mistakes that others may or may not make, whether they're intentional or otherwise, then you don't need to be in business for yourself. Well, Stuart, this is incredible. You've given such sound advice, um, you know, a great little visual into your business and, and, and what you do in your company. So let me ask you this. What's next for Bo Masada? What exciting projects are you working on? Well, it's sort of, you know, as the economy changes and we're dealing right now with uh, uh, issues with the uh, coronavirus, uh, there has been unbelievable uh, reallotment of, of uh, assets, wealth, and just the way that business is conducted in general. And we are now just weeks, if not, you know, a month or so into this, and we don't know what the future is going to hold at the lender level, at our government level, uh, nobody has any idea. We may look back at this, uh, you know, if everybody is still uh, walking upright uh, in a year and we've recovered tremendously and we've all made the right moves. And then again, you know, we could be sitting here saying, nobody's worked in the last year. We're paralyzed. Everybody's got to come together. We got to deal with the politics of all this and what certain people would like to do versus others, uh, depending on which side of the aisle that you sit on, because everybody has a better answer uh, and, and always likes <laughs> yes, to arm, always wants to armchair quarterback. <laughs> so, um, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, we, we want what's best for, uh, um, you know, the, the people, the folks, uh, but we also need to have an economy. And if you don't have an economy, then, you know, we're third world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's something that you know, is super important. So where can our, our listeners find you as well? You know, website and do you guys do anything on social media? Uh, you know, uh, our, uh, yes, my business partner, uh, uh, daughter and my daughter uh, are really pretty much in charge of, uh, you know, the social media uh, aspect and uh, uh, a lot of the cutting edge because of the generation, uh, generational. And you could find them or access them uh, on uh, our website. Uh, and we'll do that. We'll put links yeah. here in, in, in the podcast for everyone to come follow you. Yeah. And yeah. the website. Right. So you had said, well, so what's next? Well, I mean, again, who knows? Uh, I mean, we have projects in the pipeline, uh, but, you know, I don't know what the banking systems are doing right now. I mean, we're all forced with that. So we're, you know, when you listen to this podcast, you're at a point in time where everything is literally at a stop and nobody knows what's going on. And, and I'm, I'm not clairvoyant, so I'm, I'm in the same boat. We'll just have to wait and see. But we, we are teed up uh, 
with a couple projects uh, to move forward on. Uh, we're just now in a uh, what I would call a temporary hold till we can see uh, what is going to make sense in the economy in general. Well, I think the the lasting impression you know that we can leave with our listeners is that the one thing is, Stuart, you're prepared, right? You've you've done the research, you're prepared. So now that we have this reset, you know you're going to wait and have a targeted approach, and you can do so because you're prepared for it. So right. So great job again, Stuart. Thank you so much for making time. I know you have a lot on your schedule, so thank you for making time to join us on the podcast today. Happy to do it, Brad. A big thanks to Stuart for making time to come on the podcast today. And again, our thoughts are with all of our listeners and our network as many of our friends and family and colleagues around the country have been greatly impacted by the coronavirus and everything that's happening. So our minds and thoughts and prayers are with you and we ourselves, we are sharpening the tools, if you will, and preparing for how we can come out of this even better and more efficient than we were before. So there's going to be a great opportunity Everyone keep that positive mindset, and we are definitely going to get through this.